0: Hello, and welcome to Portrait of an Editor. I am Francis Lombard. This is Vault Comics Editor-in-Chief Adrian Wassel's first appearance on the show. And in our conversation, he delivers a lot of great insight into his take on editing comics, especially how the various regions of the United States have influenced his creativity. There's a lot of great stuff here when it comes to what makes a Vault comic unique, and I'm really happy how the interview turned out. A reminder, I've been conducting interviews since 2017, and you can find the earlier ones on the Portrait of an Editor Patreon page. Just go to Patreon and search for Portrait of an Editor, and it's just a buck a month to join. Now it's time to dive into my interview with Adrian Wassel from Vault Comics. Enjoy! Enjoy! Adrian, welcome to Portrait of an Editor. Uh, thanks for coming on. I'll have to say to my listeners, I know I've been a little tardy on getting stuff out, but I've been looking forward to talking to you ever since we set this up uh, a couple of months ago. I've been looking forward to it. How are you doing? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing uh, doing quite well. Great. So the first question I have for you, and we'll jump around a bit because I do want to get your origin story, but when I was prepping for this, I'm like, you just moved to Portland, Maine. I did. So I did. welcome to New England. And what does moving? Because in you've I think you're Virginia, you've been in Virginia, and you're Montana. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you move around. So is that just part of you or and what how does that affect you as an editor? I mean, the upheaval and moving and setting up the books, <laughs> setting up the offices might be exhausting, but does it inspire you or where does moving to different locations fit? Um,
1: absolutely inspires me. That's a great question that I've not ever been asked before. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's a little bit of biographical detail I have bounced around quite a bit in my life. So I was born in Maryland, um, really grew up in Virginia, but spent an enormous amount of time in Maryland because my family on my father's side um and on my mother's side were in maryland as well as georgia and new jersey and virginia so kind of all up and down the eastern seaboard and then i moved to colorado then to montana and now to maine um so i have kicked around quite a bit and i think that moving around the country has taught me an enormous amount about um just how much a space can affect fiction and and the storytelling that comes out of a region. I've, every place I've moved to, I've done a, you know, a rather deep dive into the fiction of that space. Um, And something that I've always found fascinating is that um, the prose world really seems to kind of embrace regions and spaces as, um, like vital to, to fiction, but comics of creating a space has been something that's, I I feel become um, really a part of the kind of current independent scene. Not that it hasn't always been there, but we had these massive kind of, you know, titans of the comic book scene, obviously our major cities, um, you know, places like New York, and then even places like Portland, Oregon, and um, and so evoking spaces outside of those settings or the the kind of fictional worlds of, you know, um, the big two, has, I just don't, I don't think it's been as rich a part of our history until recently. And so moving around, traveling around, one, I've gotten to meet a ton of cool artists and kind of plug into a bunch of different indie comic scenes in different places throughout the country. And there's, there are always incredible artists producing amazing stories everywhere I've lived um but it's also really encouraged me as an editor to think about uh regional spaces and how to evoke those and create those in the comic book um you know medium and 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 how genre can plug into space and and all of that. So yeah, it's it's I've just moved. I have nothing on the walls or shelves in of my office. There's a whole half of my office that's like sitting empty with cardboard boxes at the moment. So I got to settle in and get into the creepy New England vibes for this fall. It'll be it'll be fun when I do. But um yeah, I think kicking around the country has uh shaped not only, you know, sort of my tastes as an editor, but also just my understanding really of the kind of social dynamics
0: of this country at large what's the stuff that you learn about people i mean seeing you've been you know the east coast is rich with a lot a lot of history and packed with people but all from different areas and where you know it sounds like you know people are always moving through or coming through is there something that connects us or is there does location really to make and us diverse. There's definitely too.
1: something that connects us uh, specifically, like, there is this kind of undercurrent of national identity that connects a lot of Americans. But, um, you know, regional identity, I think the thing that I always find fascinating is how important regional identity is to some Americans based on the region, but not all Americans. And, you know, and how it manifests so like the frontiersman kind of um or rancher mentality and identity are extremely vital to the Mon- to montana and to the you know mountain west and to really kind of that whole sort of frontier space um and obviously our you know, national and regional identities are, are all tied up in a variety of um, histories, many of them more fiction than truth, and many of them uh, <laughs> mostly about m- making us not seem or sound like the bad guys. Um, but uh, I've, I've noticed kind of moving around the thing that's always most fascinating to me is how different a perspective people in given spaces have on the history of what it means to be an American um especially uh just like you know coming from virginia the education that i received just through public school was all about um the civil war because we were on you know our stomping grounds war were the the fields of the civil war and learned almost nothing about um you know Expansion West, it was just such a small kind of uh, like footnote in the history that we studied. Whereas moving to Montana, I was suddenly embraced, suddenly had to embrace this, this sort of population of people had learned a totally different kind of version of American history. And I think that's been the thing, that's been the biggest takeaway for me is like, yes, we're connected as people, but also how we understand ourselves and even what our nation is and how it was conceived and and sort of carried through the last couple you know centuries is very different from one region to another and that's been very eye opening um because we you know we i think we've all been acutely aware of how uh divided we've been nationally for a while now and i think it's it's if you haven't bounced around the country much it's um it's difficult to know just how different everyone's perspective in a given region is even on like the education they received the history they were taught um which is very rarely the actual history um of their space or any space within the u.s and so yeah that's been that's been the thing that's been i guess the most eye-opening for me is just how um, different, our kind of understanding of who we are is regionally. Um, I really enjoy moving around because uh, I I love seeing you know this country. I love meeting people in different places and plugging into those spaces. Not just in terms of the fiction, the storytellers, but also um, in the comics. But also just because I love different regions of this country enormously, and I love the geography and getting to see different spaces. Um, so, yeah, I think that has actually informed my work more than I think a lot of people would ever recognize. So it's kind of fun to start the podcast here <laughs> and, uh, and dive into that because I've, I've written nonfiction about um, the way that people carry, we carry spaces with us. We, we
0: almost never really leave them behind. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm changed from my moves, and I don't know if you're planning on going back to Virginia at any point, but I, I did the circle and I know I'm a very different person when I left. than When I compared to when I came back and it's not just because of age, it was definitely meeting and living in different spots. Yeah. I have no, uh,
1: no interest in going back to, uh, to Virginia. I, um, (laughs) I, I, there are parts of my, uh, sort of upbringing and Southern culture that I appreciate, but there's a lot that I left behind very, very purposefully, and I adore the American South, um, and but I don't think that I would ever want to go back to Virginia, or to move back to the the South, it would be uh, somewhere else, try to, you know, I, I grew up in a, outside a very small town in Virginia,
0: so it was not always my
1: favorite place to be.
0: <laughs> uh, and now you're in Maine where, I forgot his name, but there's a professor who fought in Gettysburg who basically, the, what is a bayonet charge that he made, the sort of ruse that he basically ended the war. I, I my, I really wish I didn't remember the name, but there you are. Now you're in Maine. And he probably his house is still there and everything. And he was fighting with his students. And then he returned to Maine. But he's one of Maine's heroes and stuff like that. So. If you, if yeah, that's definitely know.
1: not something they teach you <laughs> no. in Virginia no. <laughs> in public school. <laughs> no, their perspective on the Civil War is <laughs> interesting one. We'll put it, we'll put it that way.
0: <laughs> what is it that, with this moving and interacting with people and locations, because, as you mentioned a couple times, that the history we know is not necessarily the real history. As an editor and somebody who reads stories, and works an editor, what is it that about these experiences that affect your day-to-day when you sit down and work on a script or engage with breaking stories or, you know, looking at stories? And you were talking about how locations shape, you know, lit but how, you know where are we what are we doing for it and you know with it in comics in the medium you know what is it that, is there something in the foreground that you're thinking about or is it just something that's absolutely, back there absolutely yeah. yeah
1: um specificity really is the thing that it has um taught me and, and care if you're setting something in a place um and among people uh that isn't Totally authentic to your experiences as a creator, you have to just be really careful you have to do your research you have to be specific you have to spend time um, you know effectively evoking that that space and those and the people that live there um so that and then also it's really tuned my eye to setting um the visual setting in comics. So much can change in a comic based on this obvious and simple choices you have to make, like the color palette that you're going to use. Uh and if you're working on a you know horror comic like The Autumnal, of which we just put the graphic novel um out uh at the uh end of September, um, so it's out now. Um, you know, you have to be uh, really cognizant of the fact that New England looks very different at a given time of year than even Virginia, where we have a beautiful fall. Um, and, if, and if you're not paying attention to those small kind of discrepancies, uh, it can kick a reader out. All it takes is a small moment um, to knock a reader out of a story but it can also pull a reader in and if you do it properly and you effectively evoke place and you and you and you tune your eye to creating settings um it can be it can really create that portal where you just get lost in the fiction and lost in the comic and that doesn't apply to just you know sort of grounded more uh like locale based stories but it's it's made my kind of editorial brain always kind of kick into overdrive when we get to talking about the setting. So I'm like working on this really awesome fantasy series that we haven't announced yet that, Uh uh, that I can't talk too much about, but there's this, um, (laughs) there's this locale, this tavern in this fantasy world and um, the artist and the writer and I, you know, spent, it's a very important location for the story. It's just spent weeks working on the nuance of the space because we wanted it to feel incredibly lived in and we wanted it to feel like anytime a character walked off the page, you knew um, just sort of inherently as a reader where they were going, that they didn't just disappear, that they must be going to a place that you just can't see uh yet and that they that that effective creation of that that effective sort of um setting is can just make a story so much more impactful and so yeah moving around plugging into different spaces um has i think taught me a lot about how to move around and plug into spaces in a comic how you create space and setting and encourage creators to be really mindful of that because it can make, um, you know, a simple, simple choices can make all the difference in turning a spaceship into just another spaceship versus now it feels like a home for the characters.
0: Is it, and it's more than just world building. It's, it's not, it's something about, it's an immersion, immersion into, into the, the fiction, I mean, I, it feels like if I say world building, I'm not giving. The, it's what you're talking about. It's due. or or is that what you're looking? How you is that how you communicate? I mean, I think it to falls
1: people? under the kind of broader <laughs> heading of, of world building, but <laughs> um, but yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it's not necessarily the same. You know, your magic rules might inform your your uh, sort of fantastical setting for some kind of you know, say it's a quest narrative you're working on. But it's also the case that you can have like a really, mun- you might have a really mundane setting within even your most like bombastic and fun fantasy book. And thinking about those mundane settings and being specific and purposeful uh, is is really important. I, I'm bringing to mind this conversation I had with Danny Lore, who wrote um, Queen of Bad Dreams for us. And we just announced their upcoming book, uh, lunar Room um, with Gio Spacito uh, as their co-creator there, and we were having this conversation uh, on Queen of Bad Dreams, um, where they had set a conversation between two characters. It was the confrontation between um, uh, Daher and ultimately the who you learn is sort of the son of the main antagonist. Um, I'll speak a little bit cryptically there in case I'm <laughs> spoiling it for anyone who wants to go pick up this book after after listening um and originally, uh this interaction it happened kind of incidentally on the steps of like a courthouse setting and Danny and I talked about it, and I was like, Danny, this scene has a real is really, really. Sp- it a, has a really specific purpose for you. It's a scene with an agenda. And that agenda is, this is Daher Wen, when she finally sort of breaks and recognizes that, like, I can't do anything to affect this power structure. I am sort of powerless in face of this person, except, you know what? I can punch him in the face. <laughs> and
0: if I <laughs> punch him
1: in the face, like, at least it feels good. It probably doesn't solve any problems. But it might remind him that I'm still a person here with like a physical entity and I should be respected. And so we changed the setting to um, him basically calling Dahair, who's like a almost like a, like a cop in, in this world uh, who tra- chases down um, loose like dream figments that have popped out of people's heads and are running around the sci fi world. Um, the, this character now called Daher to this sort of country club where we see him in his context of just, like, sort of sitting in this kind of lavish excess and calling the person to him. And then that raised the stakes and really uh, gave specificity to the scene and the agenda that da- Danny had in mind, which is, like, this is the moment where Daher realizes, like, how much the power dynamic is stacked against her but I can still punch this guy in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm still mm-hmm. the more sort of physically capable, uh, mentally capable person, and, and in this context, this is what I have to, to kind of take him down a notch. And, um, and those are the kind of decisions that I think don't count as world building, but do count as setting and context for a scene. And thinking very carefully about what you're trying to achieve with your characters in a given scene can then inform where you want to set it. And to bring this all the way back around, moving around a lot and experiencing a lot of different spaces, if anything, has just taught me how much the same encounter can change drastically. The same sort of encounter can change drastically from one setting to another in real life. So apply that to your storytelling,
0: too. And Mm -hmm. apply that to comics. And it could be... And the people that that area grows or you know you know per, you know live in or that um i'm trying to like also react differently too i mean mm-hmm. um somebody from montana compared. i don't know if you've experienced this but compared to somebody in new england driving a car or driving behind you it might be a whole different experience because of the geography that's there and the history and just every and i don't know the winters or the summers and just what mind frame it puts those people in too or those characters into that i mean that's exactly what you're saying you know that yeah absolutely yeah um when do you find a spot that you've moved into that you feel comfortable in let's see it... uh,
1: as soon as i can reestablish some kind of routine i've done it so much now that for me it's really just about creating those small habits again uh as simple as like toothbrush is here notebook is there i have a desk set up um this is where I like to sit and read. As soon as I can recreate a routine, even if it's with boxes that are unpacked around me, uh, I feel settled enough that I'm back to being you know productive and kind of out of the moving mindset. Might even have big things I still have to do to be you know officially moved in, but it's that it's that establishing a, a small routine. I think I think moving around teaches you that lesson too, just how quickly you can become. Every, I think moving is scary. It always is. It's a lot. It's daunting, and it's an enormous amount of work every time, no matter how many times you do it. But I think it gets less scary because you learn that within minutes, hours, days, you will establish all these mini, tiny little routines. And as soon as you've established those, you feel a little bit more at ease. And I can't say that's true for everyone, but I do think most people are Creatures—they're more creatures of habit than they maybe even want to admit. We have the places we like to go, the places we like to sit, the things we like to do, and um, moving teaches you both how to push outside your comfort zone and how to really quickly establish your comfort zone, no matter where you are. Um, and that's that's actually a really great lesson too for creating character and fiction and um, comics and any fiction. But obviously, my my focus. Has been comics for a decade, almost a decade now, and um, that's another really, really great thing to think about when building characters. That same kind of specificity. What are their routines? If you force that character to move, what would be the first thing that they kind of set up? Would it be their coffee maker so they could have their product, you know, coffee in the morning, or would it be they more like me, where I need my book in my little ziploc bag, so I always know I have my book with me, so that I can, you know read no matter what and it won't get ruined if it's raining because i'm an uber nerd but like um you know those kind of questions are really vital to creating a character because it starts to inform you what kind of opinions they might have preconceptions they might have and how you can rock them right out of the boat totally get them out of their comfort zone and see them react in ways that will genuinely surprise your reader rather than frustrate your reader um because you know a character behaving against kind of how you expect them to behave only works if you change the context around them drastically and rapidly.
0: And, and the myth of moving is almost like, oh, here's your opportunity to become somebody different. Are you? Do you try that, or is that just you're? No. You, you're just like, <laughs> I want to see how I fit in. I'm going to be the person. And maybe because I, you know, Florida is very transient, and of course I moved to Los Angeles with everybody. myth of recreating yourself but you know but so when you're moving you're not trying to restart yourself you're going how do i fit into this location as a person who is confident being who you are i guess if that's true
1: yeah my best friend uh has moved many 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 times um and he has this really uh (laughs) Like, he, he he said it to me once, and it stuck with me so thoroughly since um, he was like, you know, everybody thinks moving is this, like, great opportunity to sort of reinvent yourself. But it's like all your problems are like that monster from It Follows. They will, it will follow you. Everything that you used to be, like, when you get on that, and he, you know, he's moved everywhere. He's moved to different countries. He's, he's traveled, you know, quite a bit and always for work. He works, um, uh, in politics and he, um, you know, what he's said to me was like, it will, all of the things that you wanted to leave behind will pack themselves up and start walking to wherever you are. So it's like, when you arrive, you only have so much time before they like show up and knock on your door and they're like, Hey, I'm here again. (laughs) And, you know, he's like, if you effectively work really hard to change a bunch of things about your routine that you want to change and, and who you are and your identity, then yes, it can be a really great catalyst for that. But you have to remember that everything you left behind is walking <laughs> and it will arrive eventually and it will knock on your door uh the further away you move the the more it seems like it'll never get there but it will arrive um was like you know it's you move to a different country across an ocean and it feels like there's no way it will ever return and then one night you know you sort of hear the knock and um i I, th- I felt like that was such valuable advice, and I've moved around quite a few times since he he said that to me, and I always think about that and it's like you know pack up and take what you want, but be aware that it's gonna everything else is gonna show up on your doorstep eventually too, and you have to have built a life where you're like you're ready for it to arrive and you can kind of unpack it now
0: It has that happened i mean you've had that's happened to you and I guess oh, it hasn't no. ha- <laughs> it hasn't yeah, happened to you in it Portland. Happen. It
1: happened. But- I mean, I don't know. I'm sure some of it's already not <laughs> Already the door there. Some of it will soon. But um, you know, I think that's just true of life is uh, you know, and that yeah. actually makes me think of this this line from uh, one of our books, Test, that Chris Sabella wrote and Jen Hickman drew, they co-created mm-hmm. it together. Um, and this line from Sabella is talking about kind of the iterations of the person that you are, and if you've read um test you know that the character a null one of the one of the big reveals and this is a spoiler so you know close your ears if you uh plug your ears if you don't want to hear it but one of the big reveals is that the character a has been replicated many 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 times so the the iteration you're experiencing the story with is just one of many who's made the same kind of exodus as a character and um There's this line that Chris writes, and I'm going to do a terrible job kind of paraphrasing it because I can't remember it directly, like verbatim. But uh, he more or less wrote, you know, you you recognize in life that uh, there are all these past versions of yourselves, these chapters with discrete beginnings and endings, Mm. even though they sort of feel like they're blurring together. And eventually you realize that you're just like you're a person standing there with someone else's luggage, like you're carrying bags that were from another person's life like a stranger's luggage is what you're carrying around when you arrive somewhere else and that stuck with me as well chris is one of those writers that writes these kind of lines that just like turn into a splinter in my brain and stick with me forever um like the opening line of that book test is uh what's the thing you hate most about yourself
0: which is just such a way to open a book (laughs) it's like how many hours do you have (laughs) yeah exactly well and that's what i mean the book is yeah yeah
1: you get a lot of issues of unpacking that
0: (laughs) well you're also able i think in moving my experience i also found out what i can do without and maybe that's the thing with writing i'm trying to bring this all back because with vault stuff and my diving into it is to you know you're there's a unique I don't want to say voice but I just did but uh, mm-hmm. you definitely have a well developed approach to stuff an approach to the stories you're looking in the home you're you know you're offering to to these unique stories unique voices unique worlds or or, or, or you know I don't know I, I, maybe you can say it better but it's a way of yeah, find, I, it, finding you find these, and I, I don't know. I'm trying to connect it back to what you can leave behind, what you learn from being in different places, and what you know, what you learn about yourself by moving. I don't
1: know how gracefully I'll tie it all together, <laughs> but I do know that uh, maybe probably that better than me. But <laughs> I can try. <laughs> can judge me, but um, I do know that a lot of readers have said. Um, for years now, that vault books have a distinct feel to them. For me, that is incredibly rewarding. Um, You know, I've been shaping and helping shape this catalog um, really since 2016, when we were putting together the first books that would hit shelves in February of 2017. And from that first kind of, those first days, that outset, Specificity was always the goal. We wanted to be genre-focused. We launched with science fiction and fantasy. We eventually expanded and added horror through our Nightfall imprint, which was originally seasonal, and is now year-round. We've expanded again with Wonderbound, which is our middle grade imprint that focuses once more on genre, uh, science fiction, fantasy, and and spooky graphic novels for kids age 8 to 12. And that specificity has, I think, really benefited us in the market, of course, because we can tell retailers and readers what we do and that we do it because we love it. If you, if you have a genre story you want to tell, bring it here. It is our passion, It's what we want to create, um, and that also helps readers when they want a scary story or they want a sci-fi book. Like You don't have to look anywhere else. You know you can always turn to vault. We'll have something for you um so that specificity has served us really well but there's another side to it which is the sort of what you've called voice um and that kind of specificity in storytelling uh that makes a book feel like a vault book and i've never figured out the perfect way to articulate what um that is uh i think a lot of it is daring um and and just sort of an am- ambition um I'd always rather see like an, a, glory, a, a glorious attempt at flight than something sitting kind of idly and safely on the ground. I love to push the genres, uh, the boundaries of the genres we operate in and really explore burgeoning new subgenres. like our book uh, No One's Rose is solar punk and that's a burgeoning genre right now that's very much a reaction to cyberpunk and thinking what is past the cyberpunk era. Um in this post-climate change world we're living in and will be living in for you know a long time to come.
0: Our uh, life our lifetimes at least. You know, exactly. We're, we're, exactly. we're not this is something we're not getting out of next decade. This no. is it. No. This is <laughs> this is
1: the new so, normal. So it's really rewarding to be working in fiction that's thinking about those questions critically and and pressing on the boundaries of the genres and doing that daring work. So daring is one part of it. Um, uh, but I also think, um, you know, I think that uh, that sort of specificity and that kind of, I don't want to say an agenda because I don't think that fiction or storytelling or art needs an agenda, but purpose, perhaps, is a better word. Um, I have this note that I give creators all the time and it's sometimes it's a bugbear for them and sometimes it's really liberating, but I always say that uh, subtlety is overrated. Um, If you have something you want to do, do it. That's really what I mean. If there's a story you want to tell, tell that story and start there. Don't start with everything but the story. That's a thing that can happen very easily when you're nervous about telling a story because you do care about it. And so when I say subtlety is overrated, what I really mean is you will earn your subtleties in any story by effectively being explicit about what you want to do, where you want to put your characters, what you want to put them through. That kind of explicit sort of storytelling in is it's, it's brave. It's brave to say, I have a story I want to tell and I'm going to do it. And that's what I want to see from storytellers. And then, by way of of that sort of being just on the page, present and explicit about what you want to do, what you want to put your characters through, you will earn all of the subtleties. But if you start with your subtleties, if you start with nothing but subtext, you'll just kind of spiral in that forever and you'll never get to the story you meant to tell. And um, that maybe is part and parcel of daring. But that's just another thing I look for, and something that I, I hope readers feel in our books, and it certainly seems like they do, is uh, that all of the subtleties and subtext are earned. And the story that is being told is precisely the story that the co- that the creators had a vision for, um, you know, and what drew them to it in the, the first place. Um, so maybe it's a simple way of saying that is kind of honoring the passion of the story, uh, and and making sure that's that's present. So I don't think I gracefully tied that all back <laughs> up to moving around in spaces and places. But other than to say, just specificity is uh, perhaps your best tool as a creator, um, knowing what you want to do and doing that, being brave enough in yourself to accomplish it, and being ultra-specific. It's amazing the subtleties that you earn and the abstractions that you earn both in art and writing and the marriage of the two when you are specific and concrete and, and you work from the specific and the concrete and then you earn these incredible abstractions and subtleties and subtext and have people talking about your characters for decades to come. Um, that's how
0: you earn that. As an editor, Scene, we probably should talk about being an editor <laughs> like For, nice movie. <laughs> with the the little time that we have left now. Um, how do you keep your talent on track if they say they they buy into what you just said? They're like, okay, but they get cold feet or maybe the honesty and the story starts going off the rails because. They feel unleashed in a way, and you're like, "So what do you do to steer this as the editor in chief of the company I, I don't we didn't even get a chance to talk about how many other editors might be working with you, but i when I was reading some stuff, I always kept seeing your name, so mm-hmm. as an editor on these books and having they buy into it, they agree with you, but as we all know, stories and creative people you know things change so how do you?" maintain that you know
1: uh mostly through positive encouragement um i guess i'm always a fan of the carrot not the stick um i think that you often like we'll use writing for this uh instead of art because i think it's a little bit easier to talk about it from the writing perspective if there's a scene that it, that somebody's you know knows needs to happen but is nervous about writing effectively, encourage them to put everything else aside and just write the scene. If you get a draft down, you're ninety percent done. Like you did the <laughs> hardest work. Like yes, you might have to put in ten times as many hours to get that to a fifth or sixth draft that you're happy with. But the only way you're ever going to get there is if you get the first draft down and encouraging those creators uh, who might be struggling in that kind of that m- moment you were talking about to just do the work that you know they can do and that they know they can do They're, You know, you sign the book for a reason, you believe in them, you remind them that you believe in them. And if they've got three scenes that they know they want in the issue, but they can't figure out how to stitch it together, make those three scenes. Write the three scenes, and then how to stitch it together will become much more apparent. But if you're just sitting there in the kind of sort of endless vortex of your own mind going, but these things don't quite add up, or how do I get this character from A to B? You can get lost in that forever. So, what it really comes down to for me is encouraging the creators to do the very thing that uh, you have full confidence in them that they can do. Like, remind them, show them, encourage them. Sorry, somebody's honking very loudly outside the window. <laughs> um, encourage them to plug into that space and do the thing that's scaring them. Um, probably because as soon as they do and they get it out of their system, they'll be so relieved. That a lot of the things that felt like big problems and big hurdles suddenly kind of disappear and they're really easy to hop over and they figure it out very quickly. Um, so for for creators who are kind of stuck in that pivotal moment, um, you know, it's it might feel like a cop out, but if my my suggestion to editors who have creators that are stuck in that kind of place is like get them focused on the thing they love most or are most scared of, sometimes that can be the same thing, and just get encourage them to get in there, get their hands in the clay, start shaping. That's the whole reason they're there. There's no failure. You're there to help them. Whatever draft gets sent to you is never going to see the light of day until you're both comfortable and ready for an audience to see it, and just remind them of that because it kind of frees them from that sort of fear of it. And the other thing that you're talking about is like what happens when you feel like a story is kind of coming off the rails and it's going off the rails and you're sort of losing it. Uh, I think that in that instance, the best thing to do is to just pause. Even if you're on a crazy tight production timeline, it's better to pause, evaluate, and start working backwards. Okay, where do we know we want this to end? Whether that's the issue the series the scene the character arc where do you know you want it to end okay that's where you that's that's what feels pivotal let's start working backwards and reducing the amount of obstacles you have to get there or maybe we need to add a few obstacles and if you can't answer that question then maybe the first thing to do is figure out where you're going and <laughs> and figure out what that ending is so when things start to go totally off the rails uh, one of the things that you've done effectively with that metaphor, right, is lost your destination. It's time mm-hmm. to kind of build a new route and say, like, do we want to go back to where we were going before? Or are you coming off, going off the rails because there, there's an urge to go somewhere else? Let's explore what that place is and figure it out before we just go, like, hurtling off of a cliff because maybe we can just build some new rail line and get you there. And um, I think that's really the best advice I have as an editor in that context is uh, when things feel like they're kind of unraveling. Pause, assess, figure out your ending, character, scene, issue, whatever, and then start working backwards to where you are and going, okay, we can connect these two.
0: Now, you work with talent. Like, I'm just thinking of Peter Milligan, you know, who's mm-hmm. been in the industry forever, and but also new talent, too. How do you? Handle interacting, I guess, with different generations of creators.
1: I think the problems are always the same. The confidence and how to address them can change a lot with uh, practice. I think that's the best way to articulate that. So, you know, the newer talent maybe just hasn't run into that problem before, and it's your job as that editor to say, "Hey, here's your toolkit. These are the these are the tools you need to get yourself out of this problem." let's try this. Oh, it didn't work. Don't panic. We've got this to try That didn't work. Don't panic. We've got this to try There, it worked. Now we're past that problem. Uh, The difference with established talent that's been doing it for years or decades is that they already kind of know that toolkit too, right? Mm -hmm. And so the conversation is maybe sped up where you sit down with them and they go, okay, I've got my, you know, my hammer and my crowbar. And you go yep you already found the right tools let's 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 get the crowbar going first you know like it's like that kind of conversation so um but what's interesting is with really established talent when you run into a problem where the tool kit is not sort of immediately discernible that can cause a whole different deeper kind of panic which is like i have been doing this for 20 years, or 10 years, or even two years, whatever, and I've run this many issues, and I've never hit this before, how the hell do I solve it? That can be really scary, because it's like, I'm supposed to be the pro who knows everything. And it's even worse when you're sitting there as an editor, and you're like, I don't know yet, either. But you can't really admit that yet. You have to spend just an enormous amount of time Um, digging back in, rereading through, evaluating everything and opening that dialogue with the creator so you can have the conversation where it's totally low stakes and nobody feels anxious and kind of evaluate things objectively before you start to add some of that subjectivity back in. And then you'll find your tools. Um, So I think it's, it's almost always the same problems, but sometimes they disguise themselves so well that they feel totally new and it's about kind of peeling away those layers until you're like ah now we know now we know what the problem is and it tracks back to this moment in issue two we can't go rewrite that so let's address it now and figure out how to make sure the continuity works or whatever you know it's something like that and so it you i guess it's um you get really good at diagnosis and i guess as a creator has been around for a long time you get really good at self-diagnosis and also (laughs) at hearing that diagnosis without freaking out um but when you're new it's just like all of these problems are new so they can seem a little more daunting and sometimes though it can you get this really great uh kind of energy from new creators where they're excited to run into these Mm -hmm. problems that's part of what they've signed up for and so they have this almost kind of like cavalier uh attitude that that's like infectious where they're like hell yeah let's tackle this problem mm-hmm. tell me what to do give me the tools and, and you have to be like well don't break everything with the hammer but try this first you know and that's that can be really fun
0: and one thing of like i know about being a good editor is that when you bring up an issue that probably you should follow it up with a solution but you just got me thinking i'm like as an editor what if you don't have an immediate solution? You know, you're going to raise a question, going to raise a problem, but what do you do if you're like, ah, do you, especially, I don't know, if you're on a phone, do you take a pause, or do you just, when you're composing an email, you have the, or whatever, you're able to say, okay, i got to put this aside and think about it. But how do you deal with not having, not coming back to your talent with, okay, there's a problem here, and I have a way of fixing it? What if you're missing that second part?
1: I think the simplest answer to that is honesty. And I do this all the time with creators. I just say, hey, I'm raising a caution flag. I don't have the answer yet or a proposed solution. I always like to propose. Proposed solution, rather, Yeah, you know, put them down like it's some sort of edict. But like, I don't have a proposed solution yet. But I do have a caution flag and I'm waving it. <laughs> and um, a lot of times what you'll discover is that uh, their kind of writerly instinct or their, you know, their artist's instinct was already flagging it too. But they're so good at their work that they they were kind of pushing themselves past it, which I actually love to see. And if you come back and you remind them like, hey, did you have that gut check when you hit this moment too? And you raise that caution flag. They will often start saying, yeah, you know, I did have a, I did have some concerns with that. And here's why I had some concerns with it. And what they're thinking and articulating is probably different than the perspective you have as that first reader, as an editor. And it's often in that conversation where you find the proposed solution because they will clue you into concerns that they had elsewhere in the story or say a page layout or something like that they will clue you into the choices that in, or the yeah, the choices that informed that choice that is now problematic. And when they do, suddenly you'll kind of get to see their mental arithmetic and go, oh wait a second, hold on, pause. It's like this is this is where the problem is manifesting. But it's actually the case that if we just go back to here and tighten this little thing up, then we can do this in this space and that's our proposed solution. So it it kind of ramifies, it It, it sort of uh, resonates forward and back through the story. And so I always just say, honestly, there, raise the caution flag and say, I don't have a proposed solution yet. I want to know more about whether you have total confidence in this moment or you were feeling concerned. And if they were feeling concerned, then you know that it is, in fact, something you have to address and fix. And you have that conversation where it's like, what were the choices that informed this choice? You start to hear those, and then you'll find that proposed solution. You kind of bat it back and forth a couple of times. Mm-hmm.
0: So, where it's eleven oh five, I know you have to be out. One question before we get into the lightning round, so I can let you go. What does it feel like seeing your, you know, what I read was a lot of horror. You know, my first one uh, was, you know, Devil's, uh, what is it? Devil's Red Bride, Sebastian yep. Gurner stuff. And that's an another novel. incredible editor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've had him on the show a couple of times, but his writing was really Mudge great. Much more story career than mine. <laughs> and Stephen King. I mean, you've been doing the last book and the rush, but you're in the home, the home state of Stephen King. And it's not that far to get to Bangor. So, what is if Are you going to, make a trip to mecca in the horror mecca or oh, yeah uh, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> i Hope. definitely will um and yeah
1: you know i um we, we launched with science fiction and fantasy uh mm-hmm. before we added horror but i think anyone who knows me well knows that horror is my first genre love that was the genre that made me fall in love with genre storytelling broadly i would not have found my way into sci-fi and fantasy with the adoration. I now have for those genres if it wasn't for horror, i have been a lifelong devoted fanatical horror junkie and i always will be so yes i will most certainly be making a mecca um (laughs) and i absolutely reread like six stephen king books before i moved here so it was uh and in fact i listened to um his uh his newest novel um why has the name gone right out of my head about the hired assassin? Um, it's just the character's name. Um, the hired assassin is writing his first novel. I just oh, listened sure. to that on the way here. Um, it'll come to me in a second, or I can just
0: cheat and look it up. Uh, it's probably right on my girlfriend's shelf right now too. So I'm like, um, she, she's a big fan. <laughs> it was re- really. It was uh, um,
1: Billy Summers. That's what it was called. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, um it was really fun it was not horror at all but it was very fun and it was nice because it was within the connected stephen king universe so there was a little nod to um the shining and dr sleep
0: and that when they make their way out to colorado so that was kind of fun do you feel like walking around maine do you feel like you're in a stephen king novel a lot of times now (laughs) i haven't had that sensation yet actually it's interesting i um
1: No, the probably the I'm an avid kind of like outdoorsman. It's one of it's my biggest hobby is skiing, backpacking, hiking, just all of that. I love it. I love going out into nature and kind of unplugging and just bringing a book and reading and being out there. And when I moved from the East Coast to the Mountain West, I was so accustomed to the woods here just being like loud with bugs and there's always a road somewhere or there's water like there's there's just a lot of life Mm -hmm. in the east coast you know the undergrowth is so thick that you can walk like three feet off of a road and just get like stuck in bramble and thorns and when i moved to the mountain west it is dead silent in the woods it is complete. there's not a single sound like a tiny little ground squirrel will sound like an elephant because it'll like snap a branch a mile away and, like makes you jump and I that was the scariest thing was like moving from this cacophony of sound in the woods to like the first time I went out backpacking by myself in Montana and was like set up my tent I was completely alone miles and miles away from anyone else and it was just utterly silent in the woods I was like this is terrifying. <laughs> this is somehow much scarier than like and uh, that. So I haven't had the experience of being in a Stephen King novel yet. I think maybe I spent too much time in the space of like the woods and the hills and and whatnot uh, on the e- on the eastern seaboard. Because my scariest experience is like being That's out funny. in like the dead burn in the mountain west and just listening to the trees like you know kind of like moaning your name as they like sway in the like the the wind is, like, kind of, like, you know, scratching out creepy little, like, words. You're like, did, it, did that tree just talk? <laughs> it's, it's very, it's, uh, it's, that silence is, is haunting. Oh.
0: So, it's time for the lightning round because you got to get on a phone call. So, five, well, 4.5 questions, just very okay. quick <laughs> answers. Just go through them, whatever comes to mind. Uh, after you hear me rattle off the question. Um, so the first one, what creator, living or dead, would you like to have the chance or had the chance to um, to edit? Uh, right now, I would love to edit
1: Tom Taylor. I've, been, I've just been adoring his work. And uh, that would just be, I feel like there's some sensibilities there that are really aligned, and I would that would be really fun. That would be really, really fun. Cool. So that came to mind.
0: <laughs> what comic have you read recently that uh, really wowed you?
1: Oh, man. That's always so hard because I have so, so many. Um, let's see. Uh, let me cheat and look at my stack. <laughs> what I have that um, that I've been just absolutely devouring because my. My current stack. Let's get through, grab something brand new that uh that I've been really enjoying. Um actually I just read number one of Maw from Boom, which is uh Jude Ellison S. Doyle and A. L. Kaplan. And um I really, really liked that. And that's brand new. And I always like plugging new books that people can get into. Um some of the layouts and the artwork in this is just amazing really incredible page compositions um so there we go let's let's uh let's let's shout out a number one that people can go get
0: yeah i'm gonna have to check it out and i was looking at some of the stuff that you know just the promotion stuff i'm like i gotta check that yeah thank you for reminding me about that so while working what do you prefer to have on is it music, audiobooks, radio, a podcast or TV Silent. or complete silence?
1: <laughs> yeah. I, the only music I can do is um, like instrumental. I, I have a really hard time focusing on editing if I've got like another story playing and mm-hmm. or music playing in my head doesn't really work for me. Um, as soon as I'm done working, I have an audiobook playing, you know, at all hours of the day. <laughs> but uh, when I'm working, it's um, it's quiet for me or instrumental
0: music. So, what is your favorite comic book convention and why? Ooh, Emerald um, City Comic Con.
1: Um, it just has a special place in my heart. It's it was our first show that we went to uh, when Heathen number one and fissure number one came out in February of 2017. Um, it was, you know, just a few short weeks after that, Tim Daniel and I like borrowed half an artist alley table from, I actually think we, we got it from Mike Morisi cause Mike couldn't go. Um, and, uh, I hadn't really spent much time in Seattle before that. I'd only ever been there and this is weird, but I'd only ever been there for judo tournaments cause I was in, in school. I, I was a judoka and. So I've been there for judo tournaments and you don't get to like do anything. You're just there for like that tournament and that's it. And you know, that's all you get to do when you're in somewhere for sports. So um being there in like the city with our inaugural like books on shelves and like people just being really excited about Vault and coming up, I met so many incredible people there, like lifelong friends, um, creators that we've worked with numerous times. And then I also just really enjoyed Seattle. Like, I know it's impo- like very hard to live there because it's like expensive and mm-hmm. there's so much traffic and I get all of that. But I also just really, really enjoyed Seattle as a city and um, got to just kind of like wander around every evening by myself all over the city. And like, I ate really well and I met a ton of awesome people. And so for that reason, Emerald City Comic Con has just kind of always been my favorite show I think I like fell in love with it and now probably won't ever fall out of love with it
0: <laughs> I heard the location is if I remember correctly somebody else has said the location is great because you can just walk out of the convention and you're in the city and you can enjoy the city too yes, that sounds like yes, what you just said a
1: huge part of it you know one of the things that I don't love about San Diego comic-con for instance is that like you're kind of your back is against the water and you're feel sort of stuck in the um, the uh, gas lamp um, district. And you don't really have access to anywhere else. Whereas what you just described about Emerald City Comic Con is totally true. You walk like a block or a block and a half away from the convention, and it might as well not even exist. You're just back in the city plugged in with like a the city itself, the rest of the city is still just kind of buzzing around in it's normal way. Um, and you know, a New York Comic Con is a blast. I love New York Comic Con. Um, but it, it's like sandwiched in over by um, uh, By I guess you're over kind of in Midtown is where I've always stayed. And it's really fun to get to go see all the cool uh, like the amazing shops in New York. And I love New York City. But uh, yeah, Emerald City, it does have that vibe where you can just kind of like escape the show and suddenly be in a city to explore. So it's been fun in that way where it's like you get convention, but it also kind of feels like a mini vacation where you don't have to work as soon as you leave the con before. <laughs> Perfect.
0: Well, hey, Adrian, that's it. Uh, hopefully I'm not making you late. So thank right. you. It's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you very much. It was great talking to you. We'll have to have you come back on and we'll actually talk about editing, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, a little I mean, more. <laughs> we'll figure out another date. We can add, we can add more to it. But oh, thank
1: like, you so much. I really appreciate I, you having me on. I,
0: I can get your origin story now next time and see you know what you actually do as an editor-in-chief so
1: yes yes we'll talk about that and rebecca taylor is the managing editor tay of uh wonderbound maybe we can get her on the show as well because she's uh got a very different perspective than i do and works on a totally different line of books
0: so sounds like a plan so thank you very much and i'll be talking to you later all right thank you take care you too